Hello everyone and welcome back to the finals countdown series which is brought to you by MedTalks where we are providing medical students, i.e. the future of our NHS, with short, succinct and super useful revision talks on common medical conditions across all specialities. My name is Sahil Nachani and I am currently a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. This episode is part of the respiratory section and today we'll be talking about pulmonary tuberculosis. So, let's get straight into it. What is tuberculosis or TB? So, TB is a notifiable disease which is caused by the bacteria Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. This is this encompasses a, new, a number of bacteria including Mycobacterium tuberculosis, Mycobacterium bovis and Mycobacterium africanum. The bacteria is spread via the inhalation of infected droplets. So let's talk about pathophysiology. When a patient becomes infected with these bacteria, the host macrophages engulf the organisms in the lung and take them to the hyalur lymph nodes to try and control the infection. Some organisms may disseminate via the lymphatics or blood vessels to distant sites. and Small granulomas form around the body to contain this bacteria and these are called tubercles. And the bacteria may also be encapsulated in a defensive barrier but persist in otherwise healthy individuals and the disease is classified as dormant. Only in a small proportion of patients does, the bact- does it progress to overt or active TB. So just a few statistics. TB is the second most common cause of death from infectious diseases in the world, secondary to HIV and AIDS. What are the risk factors? Well, there are a number of risk factors that can lead to TB. Close contact of someone with TB, ethnic minority groups, for example, from South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, homelessness, alcoholism, drug misuse, poverty, malnutrition and overcrowding. Immunocompromised patients, such as patients with HIV or those who are on immunosuppressants, the elderly, Patients with other conditions such as haematology, oncology conditions such as cancers, use of steroids, end-stage renal disease, and children are also susceptible to TB because they have immature immune systems. So how does TB present? Well, as I said earlier, it can affect multiple organisms, but most of the time it's in the lungs. Patients can present with general symptoms such as fatigue, malaise, fevers, weight loss, anorexia, and in children particularly, failure to thrive, and a pyrexia of unknown origin. Respiratory TB accounts for 60% of cases in the UK, where patients present with a chronic productive cough with purulent and possibly some blood-stained sputum. And this can lead to lobar collapse, a pleural effusion, pneumonia, and bronchiectasis. In terms of genitourinary system, TB can present as sterile pyuria and this is the persistent finding of white blood cells within the urine in the absence of any bacteria and any culture techniques that performed show that there's no bacteria present and so it appears sterile. Now sterile pyuria is not uncommon and it can have multiple causes including a recently treated UTI or an inadequately treated UTI But one of the potential causes is renal tract tuberculosis. 
The musculoskeletal system can be affected where patients can suffer from arthritis, osteomyelitis and formation of abscesses, for example a psoas abscess from spinal TB, and it can lead to nerve root compressions and isolated bone or joint lesions. The GI tract can be affected and it can cause abdominal pain, bloating, and it may even cause ascites through peritoneal spread. And the skin can be effect in affected, where erythema nodosum is a common finding. This represents an early immunological response to the infection, and it's infection of the fat cells underneath the skin. And it results in red, painful, tender lumps, most commonly found in the front of the legs below the knees. TB can also present with pericardial issues, which initially may be non-specific, but there may be signs of pericardial effusion, such as an elevated JVP or constrictive pericarditis. TB can also affect the central nervous system and can lead to TB meningitis and the formation of tuberculomas, which can lead to headache, vomiting and altered consciousness. And TB also causes lymphadenopathy where the hyla, paratracheal and superficial lymph nodes are involved. So patients who have pulmonary TB may present with the following signs on examination. They may have abnormal breath sounds, particularly reduced sounds over the upper lobes or the areas that are involved, and bronchial breathing, which is indicative of lung consolidation and so also some crackles, again suggestive of infection. In terms of the investigation, a chest x-ray is essential even in non-pulmonary disease, as there may have been pulmonary infection. So primary TB usually appears as a central apical portion within with a left lower lobe infiltrate or pleural effusion. In reactivated TB, there is no pleural effusion and the lesions are apical in position. And severe disease with a poor immune response can produce a picture like millet over the chest x-ray and hence the name miliary tuberculosis. And this is basically multiple nodules around 1 to 10 millimeters spread throughout the lungs. If the chest x-ray is normal then pulmonary TB is unlikely. So remember that other infections may mimic the chest x-ray appearance and typical TB Appearances include patchy or nodular shadows in the upper zones, loss of volume, fibrosis and possible cavitations. Okay, now we'll look at the microbiology investigations. So, if we're suspecting TB in a patient, then we should request rapid diagnostic nucleic acid amplification tests for the mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, which is which, com is, which is composed of Mycobacterium tuberculosis, Mycobacterium bovis, and Mycobacterium africanum, if there is a clinical suspicion. And firm diagnosis rests on isolating the infecting organism, and subsequent sensitivity testing can be used to guide the antibiotic therapy. So, but the isolation of the organism can be difficult. For respiratory TB, we should send at least three spontaneous sputum samples for culture and microscopy, including one sample early morning. And if spontaneous sputum samples are not possible, then we should consider bronchoscopy and lavage, or in children, gastric washings.
or gastric lavage basically involves placing a nasogastric tube so a tube from the nose down to the stomach and then administering uh, flush, flushing saline solutions into the stomach and followed by the suction of gastric contents and then analysis of these contents. We should take samples before starting treatment or within seven days of starting it. If there are clinical signs and symptoms of TB then treatment should be started even without culture results and the treatment should be completed even if the culture results are negative. And for non-respiratory TB then we would need to perform biopsy and needle aspirations. So we send samples in a dry pot for TB culture and these may be lymph node biopsies, aspirated pus, early morning urine or any other samples. If the histology and clinical picture are consistent with TB then drug treatment should be started before the culture results are available and it should be continued even if the results are negative. And a chest x-ray should be done for coexisting respiratory TB in all patients with non-respiratory TB. Now all of the samples are analysed by staining the sample with the zeal Neeson stain and using rapid direct microscopy to look out for the acid alcohol fast bacilli. So what does this mean? So acid fastness is a property of certain bacterial cells specifically with their resistance to decolorization by acids during laboratory staining procedures. And once stained as part of, part of a sample, these organisms can resist the acid and or the ethanol-based decolorization procedures, which are common in many staining protocols. And that's where the name acid fast comes from. And the mechanism of the acid fastness varies by species, but the most well-known example is mycobacterium, so mycobacterium tuberculosis. And the most common staining technique is the zeonesin stain, where acid fast species are stained bright red and stand out clearly against a blue background. Another investigation that's performed is the Lauenstein Jensen culture, which takes four to six four to eight weeks due to slow bacterial growth, and the sensitiv sensitivities take three to four weeks more. But the important point is that treatment should be started even before knowing the culture results and should be continued if the culture results are negative for TB. MAN2 testing should be used to diagnose latent TB infection in people who are either household contacts or close work or school contacts aged 5 years and older of all patients who are diagnosed with active TB. And the MAN2 test involves the following. It involves using something called tuberculin, which is made out of an extract of Mycobacterium tuberculosis, so a standard dose of 5 tuberculin units is injected intradermally, so between the layers of the dermis, on the flexor surface of the left forearm, midway between the elbow and the wrist. The injection should be made with a tuberculin syringe and with the needle bevel, bevel facing upward. And when placed correctly, the injection should produce a pale wheel of the skin, 6 to 10 millimetres in diameter. The result of the test is read after 48 to 96 hours, but 72 hours, so the third day is ideal, and the, the, it's the, the technique is termed the Mantoux technique. And a person who's been exposed to this bacteria is expected to mount an immune response in the skin containing the bacterial proteins. And the response is a classical example of delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, or type 4. So T cells and myeloid cells are attracted to the site of the reaction between 1 and 3 days and generate local inflammation. And the reaction is bred by measuring the diameter of induration, so a palpable raised hardened area, across the forearm 
in millimetres. And if there is no induration, then the result should be recorded as zero millimetres. And the erythema should not be measured. So, in terms of interpretation, then it must be interpreted carefully. The person's medical risk factors determine at which increments, so 5 millimetres, 10 or 15, of induration the result is considered positive. So a positive result indicates TB exposure. 5 millimetres or more is positive in an HIV positive person, somebody with recent contacts with a TB patient, somebody with nodular or fibrotic changes or in an X-ray suggested with old healed TB, and patients with organ transplants and other immunosuppressed patients. And 10 millimetres or more is positive in recent arrivals from high prevalence countries, injection drug users, people with clinical conditions that place them at high risk, such as diabetes, prolonged steroid use, leukaemia, end-stage renal disease. And 15 millimetres or more is positive in somebody with no known risk factors for TB. But the MAN2 test may be positive in patients who have had the BCG vaccine, and in this instant, interferon gamma testing is recommended as a second-line test for people whose MAN2 test shows positive results, or instead of the MAN2 test for whom MAN2 testing may be less reliable, so for those who have been vaccinated with BCG. And if MAN2 testing is inconclusive, then the patient should be referred to a TB specialist. So, now let's explore how we're going to manage TB. Firstly, as I mentioned at the start, TB is a notifiable diseases, so all cases of TB must be notified under the Public Health Regulations 1988 Act to provide surveillance data and to initiate contact tracing and nursing input. Now let's move on to drug treatment. So for people with active TB without, cent CNS, without central nervous system involvement, patients should be offered the four drugs, so isoniazid, rifampicin, pyrazinamide and ethambutol, also, also commonly remembered as RIPE for two months, and then isoniazid and rifampicin for a further four months. And it's important to be, remember that another drug is used alongside isoniazid, and this is called pyridoxine, and this is to prevent the potentially damaging peripheral neuropathy, which is a side effect of the isoniazid. For people with active TB of the central nervous system, then the, they should be offered isoniazid alongside pyridoxine, rifampicin, pyrazinamide and ethambutol for two months and then isoniazid with the pyridoxine and rifampicin for a further 10 months. And the treatment should be modified according to drug susceptibility testing. So for drug resistant TB this will require close specialist assessment, management and monitoring. Now a major determinant of the success of this treatment is compliance. It's essential to prevent treatment failure and the acquisition of drug resistant. So a patient should be told that there is a long course of treatment ahead. And supervised therapy can improve compliance in some treatment groups. So, in terms of the first-line drugs, isoniazid, rifampicin and pyrazinamide are associated with liver toxicity. And so the liver function tests should be checked before starting treatment with these drugs. Those patients with pre-existing liver disease or alcohol dependence should have frequent checks, especially in the first two months. And Similarly, kidney function should be checked before treatment and any appropriate dosage adjustments should be made. The side effects of ethambutol are largely confined to visual disturbances, so for example, loss of acuity, colour blindness and visual field restriction. If patients develop deterioration in their vision, then they should be told to discontinue the therapy and early discontinuation of the drug is almost always followed by recovery of eyesight. 
and their visual acuity should be tested by a Snellen chart before starting treatment with ethambutol. In the event that patients develop liver toxicity due to any of the drugs, then we can turn to second-line agents, and these are used by specialists in certain situations. These include amikacin, cyclosyrene, macrolides such as azithromycin or clarithromycin, and quinolones such as levofloxacin. An issue with treating TB is the growing problem of multi-drug resistant TB, which is the resistance to more than one drug, and extensively drug resistant TB, which is the resistance to more than three drugs. And these are becoming global problems, which are leading to high mortalities, and they are threatening to destabilize TB programs in several parts of the world. And the way the the approach that we use now nowadays for MDR TB is treating with at least four effective antibiotics for around 18 to 24 months. And what about latent TB? So firstly, we need to rule out active TB by chest X-ray and examination. Is tip the treatment is typically a single antibiotic agent for around three to six months, and usually that is either isoniazid or rifampicin. Mention about the common drugs that are used in TB. So rifampicin is a bactericidal antibiotic. It inhibits DNA transcription, and common side effects are nausea, anorexia, but it also is famous for causing orange discoloration of excreted bodily fluids, such as urine. So if you get a question in an exam where it says the patient is passing orange-coloured urine, then rifampicin is likely to be the cause. Isoniazid is also a bactericidal antibiotic, and it inhibits bacterial cell wall synthesis, and it causes nausea, vomiting, but it also causes peripheral neuropathy, and that's why we give it. That's why we give pyridoxine alongside it to prevent these effects. Pyrazinamide is a bactericidal antibiotic, which leads to hepatotoxicity, nausea, vomiting, arthralgia, and ethambutol is a bacteriostatic antibiotic which interferes with cell wall synthesis and it can lead to optic neuritis which can lead to red-green colour blindness. Finally, I'd just like to touch on the prognosis for TB. So in general, the prognosis of TB is good if patients are compliant with their treatment, diagnosis, diagnosis can be made early and they can, patients complete the treatment protocols. The recurrence rate is generally low and some may occur due to reinfection, so patients may develop secondary TB, and this is particularly in the immunocompromised, so patients with HIV. But the ongoing issue is drug-resistant TB, and this is becoming a problem around the world. And in these cases, the prognosis is not so good. We won't go deep into that, and I think we'll bring the episode to an end here. I hope you found this useful, and I hope you've learned a lot about tuberculosis. Please remember to give us some feedback, and we'd really appreciate if you could leave some comments on the iTunes podcast channel and give us some ratings. You can also send us some feedback via our social media platforms, Instagram or Facebook, or you can email us, and our email address is hellomedtalks at gmail.com. Check out all of our other episodes on all of the podcast platforms, and we've got a next episode coming up, which is talking about lung cancer. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and see you next time. Goodbye.